Good morning. I'm going to be reading Joshua 24, verses 29 through 33. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hammer, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. Um, My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces. I see a lot of brand new faces. So thank you guys for joining us. Uh, This is the very last uh, sermon that we're going to walk through in Joshua. Um, it, It makes me sad and excited. Mostly it makes me sad because this book and preaching through this book has been transformative for me. It's been a huge part of my formation um, as a student of Christ. And I've heard from many of you that it has been formative for you as well uh, as as you follow Jesus and as you um, learn about scripture and who God is to us and who we are to him through the book of Joshua. That makes me sad, but I'm really grateful that you would um, walk through this special uh, book with us, this, this time that we've taken to walk together. Um, but I am excited, and I'm excited for this reason, because uh, like Kelsey mentioned earlier, in the next four weeks, we're going to slow down. We just sped straight through a whole book in just about 20 weeks, um, and we're going to slow down, and we're going to spend four weeks in one verse. So we're going to stop and uh, meditate on John 1.14 over the next few weeks in Advent, and then after the new year, we're going to get back into, Joshua, into Mark, not Joshua. We're not doing this uh, twice around. We're going to get back into Mark. So we stopped Mark after Easter, um, and we're going to get back into that after the new year and go through Easter again uh, in Mark. And then after Easter, we're going to start a summer, a summer series in the Psalms just to give you a, a look at what's ahead over the next six to eight months. Um, we like to preach through a lot of different genres of Scripture, and so we wanted to hit some New Testament, some Old Testament. We did Colossians, we're doing Joshua, um, and then we're going to get into Mark and the Psalms, and so we're trying to hit a lot of different things. But why I'm excited is because this transformative journey, this formation that we've all experienced through Joshua, I'm confident that the Spirit will continue that. I'm confident. I know in my head, I believe in my heart that the Spirit will continue His work in us um, through these next uh, series as He guides us through Scripture. So um, today, as we close our time in Joshua, we're going to talk about two topics that are, they show up often in Scripture, and sometimes they show up together in Scripture, death and worship. Um, It's not going to be as hard and heavy as as it may sound Um, But if we pay attention to these five verses here at the very end of Joshua, we'll notice there's an intimate connection between 
death, and worship. Um, We'll start by paying attention a little bit to the church in Philippi. So if you want to turn to Philippians 4, you can do that. Um, We'll also have the verses on the screens behind me. But a little background about Philippi. It was a a city in Rome, and this was a city that had a ton of national pride. They were so prideful about Rome that they worshipped Caesar as a god. Along with the other Roman gods, they worshipped Caesar as the god made flesh, right? We have understood that concept Um, in our scriptures as well, this is a little bit different. Um, Because of this national pride and because of the way that they worshiped um, this man who was not God, Christianity quickly became the primary threat to Roman worship. And it was common in Philippi as it was in all of Rome, that Christians were persecuted regularly and heavily. They were imprisoned, they were enslaved, and even executed for their faith in Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit writes this letter to them through the Apostle Paul as they're faced with death, as they're faced with imprisonment and enslavement. The Spirit writes this letter to encourage encourage them to find joy and peace despite their circumstances and sometimes even because of their circumstances. Let's look at Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And I'll paraphrase a little bit here. Be reasonable to everyone. Don't be anxious, but be constantly thankful That word used in the Greek, thankful to give thanksgiving, is the same word that we use when we say worship. Rejoice always, be reasonable, don't be anxious, but worship in thanksgiving always. And when you do this, the peace of God that surpasses understanding, doesn't that sound great? I want that kind of peace. It will rule your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We see the Philippians were familiar with incredible loss and death. But the Spirit of God invites them to worship. Does that not seem and feel counterintuitive? Because we, um, in our flesh, it, it feels counterintuitive because we want to worship. We feel motivated to worship when our circumstances are good, when things are going well when we can clearly point to the tangible blessings of God in our lives, then we will want to worship. But I can tell you, um, I know for many of you, it's hard some Sundays coming into this room. It's a challenge to worship. It's a challenge to come in here and sing to Jesus. It is for me. Most of the time, because I'm, I'm either thinking of one or both of these two questions. How can I sing? How can I rejoice when there's so much to worry about? Or how can I worship when I feel so unworthy? When my sins and my failures are right in front of me, they're obvious, and I feel so much shame and guilt. How can I worship when I feel pressured by so much shame and guilt? 
Well, we don't rejoice, we don't sing, we don't worship because our circumstances are good and right and favorable. We don't sing and worship because we are worthy to worship. We worship because Jesus is worthy of worship. And it doesn't require being able to point to tangible, physical blessings. It doesn't require even being able to point to any blessings. Sometimes we just can't muster that strength or even use those words. It doesn't require us to be good. It doesn't require us to be perfect or polished. Worship requires nothing of us except for our affections. And so we come into this room and we find it difficult on some Sundays because we don't want to fake it. We know that Jesus says the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And so we don't want to come in here and put on a show when we're not feeling it. And that's good. That's right. And so how do we listen to Joshua 24? How do we listen to Philippians 4 that says rejoice always, worship God in all things, and then actually worship in spirit and in truth? Well, in Joshua 24, we'll see um, this illustrated for us. And Brian spent the last couple of weeks recapping uh, Joshua. Chapters 23 and the first part of 24 was the recap of Joshua. It was Joshua saying, let's look back on everything that God has done. This guy was the leader. He could have said, look at all the things I've led you through. He said, let's look back and, and see what God has done. And his primary command that's repeated through 23 and 24 was he said, cling to God because he's better. And so we end Joshua not looking back through the book, but it's almost like we already did this. We already went full circle and looked back on the whole book. And the last portion of Joshua is like the diamond on top of the ring. We've noticed in scripture, we pointed out some in our sermons uh, from time to time that, that the scripture is often written in a chiastic structure. And it's really easy for us here because there's five verses and this chiastic structure where the beginning and the end mirror each other, and then we take one step closer to the middle and it mirrors each other, and it all points to the center. That's the purpose. Do we have that slide that, that summarizes, there we go, our five verses here just really briefly summarized. See how it points like an arrow to verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Their worship wasn't contingent on Joshua doing something awesome for them because if it were, it would have died with Joshua. It outlasted Joshua. What kind of a legacy is that? That the worship of the generations would outlast the leader that initiated it. Although these verses, we look at 29 and 33, 30 and 32, Israel's surrounded in this moment by death and burial. And if we do look back through Joshua, we see a lot of death and a lot of burial. 
This passage is sandwiched between Joshua and Judges, two of the bloodiest books in Scripture. And in the middle, in verse 31, the Spirit cries out, Rejoice, in all things rejoice. And it's important that we take this minute. We don't lump this passage into the rest of 24. It's important that we stop, we pause, we pay attention to Israel getting it right. We can move too quickly into Judges. It's the very next page before chapter two even begins that Israel fails again, immediately. And we can look at that and we can scoff at that and say, Israel, come on, don't you know? We can do that, but we're not going to. We will take the time and we will pay attention to Israel getting it right. We live in this culture that likes to sum up a person by the most scandalous parts of their lives. Whether someone was wholly good, we, we kind of ignore that, well, they, they had a little bit of bad stuff. We just like to take the parts that, were the, the, that shone the brightest. Or maybe there was a, a negative scandal in their life. And so we trash all the good. We like to do this because it, it, we think that we see ourselves in other people. And so we like to compare. And when we gloss over the good in someone's life to point out the bad, it helps us gloss over the bad in our life to point out the good. And so we're, we sit with this passage where Israel is juxtaposed between two really difficult pieces of scripture, the book of Judges, that's all about their failure. And then chapters 23 and 24, like Brian said last week, Joshua calls them to serve and worship God. And they say, yeah, we'll do it. And he says, no, you won't. But they do. For a time, they do. And we cannot move too quickly. We must pay attention to what the Spirit has to tell us in Joshua 24, 29 through 33. Because what the Spirit is telling Israel, he's telling us in these scriptures. In our passage, God makes it clear that he's focused not on our behavior, but on our affections. So what's this connection between death and worship? Um, well, first we have, to, we have to define worship. Worship is the outpouring of our affections, the, the um, gratitude towards whatever it is that our soul clings to. It's the way that we live, the way that we speak. It's what motivates our actions, our behaviors, and um, our words, our thoughts. Worship is designed to be the fruit and the fertilizer of our affections. Did you notice I've taken up a gardening hobby? Worship is the fruit and fertilizer of our affections. Here's what I mean. Whatever your soul clings to, whatever you most desire in your life, you will worship it. You will. I'm not saying that you might. I'm not saying that if it's God, you will. I'm not saying that you have to be Christian to worship 
everyone worships. We were designed for worship. Non-religious people worship. If you're not a Christian, what is it that you most want other people to know? What is it that you most value, that you most care about, that you wish other people would just understand? What is good news to you that you want other people to pick up on? What captivates your imagination? What do you daydream about? We were designed to worship. It's not a part of our humanity we can ignore. We will worship. Have you ever been to Rogue Kitchen? <laughs> I've brought this up in a sermon before. It's going to come back again. Let me just tell you, it's 10 times worth the drive to wall and back. Have you had their brisket queso? <laughs> I, I know who has because you're nodding and you're drooling. Sorry, they're closed on Sundays. You're going to have to wait. But if you ever want to hear a man talk to his food, <laughs> just like sit quietly by yourself in Rogue Kitchen and you will hear it. Okay. Worship is the fruit of our affection. You know how I feel about Rogue Kitchen because I've told you about it. It poured out of me. But it's also the fertilizer of our affection because when I tell you about the St. Fire Burger that I'm going to get later this week with extra habaneros, it makes me want it more. It's both the fruit and the fertilizer of our affection. When we worship, we're pouring out what we care about. We're pouring out to it. And it's coming back and making us want to worship it even more. And we all have multiple things in our lives that we preach the gospel of. And this is not, it's not a bad thing. But juxtaposed next to death and loss, we realize that Rogue Kitchen really isn't that important. We realize that NBA 2K25 is not that important. The connection between death and worship is that death reveals to us what is most important. It reveals to us what we worship and whether or not that thing can be taken from us. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even death. There is no loss that will take us from the only thing we truly have. Everything else can die. Everything else can die. That means everything else is unworthy of our worship. There is only one thing that will last through the book of Revelation, through the apocalypse, through this next election cycle. Only one thing will make it. The love of God in Christ Jesus towards his people. Worshiping God is the fruit and the fertilizer of our affections for him. The life of David illustrates this well. And I'll look at uh, Psalm 27, if you want to turn there. 
Psalm 27, verses 3 through 4. This is the psalm that begins, um, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the refuge of my life, the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? We don't know the moment that Psalm 27 was written in. It was either in the moment of battle, David very clearly facing potential death, or whether it was in memory of his nearness to death. And he's recalling his thoughts and his emotions. But he says in verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arises against me, yet I will be confident. So through his circumstances, he's not afraid. Death is very near to King David and he's not afraid. And he says this, one thing I have asked of the Lord. On the face of death, he says, I only want one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. That word uh, inquire, another translation is meditate to gaze upon the beauty of God and meditate in his temple. David faced with death wants only one thing because in the face of death, he realizes only one thing matters. To gaze upon the beauty of God, to meditate on his goodness and his forgiveness. Death and worship are intimately connected. And really, loss in general, death and loss reveal what it is that we worship and whether or not we can permanently have that thing. You see, in in Joshua 1, God instructs Joshua to cling to him. He says, obey my commands. And if we look closer into Uh, especially the book of Deuteronomy, but throughout scripture, if we look closer into what God means when he says, obey me, he says, cling to me, love me with your whole heart. That's obedience. And God says, obey my commands. Follow closely to me this instruction that I've given you. Don't swerve to the left or to the right, but cling to it and you'll find life. Don't be afraid. I'll be with you. God instructs Joshua to cling to him, to worship him alone, to follow his instruction alone. And then Joshua multiplies that teaching to Israel. Immediately after hearing that from the Lord, he goes and tells it to his leaders who tell it to the whole nation. And we see that theme repeated. There's certain parts within Joshua where we look back and it's repeated Don't be afraid, I am with you. Or someone, mostly Joshua, will tell the people, don't be afraid, God is with us. And so the last couple of sermons that Brian preached was this looking back and saying, we didn't have to be afraid because God was with us. And he did all of this. We get to cling to him. 
this final sermon that Joshua preaches is look at the last few years of what God has called us to do. This amazing, incredible act that he said he would do through us to take up this land, to push out the wicked before God and to take up this land of inheritance. Look what God did was the refrain of Joshua's final words. We know that Joshua wasn't perfect. We know that his behavior was not pure. But we can see in the last two chapters of Joshua and clearly through the legacy that he left in the verse 31 of Joshua 24, we see that his heart was pure. That Joshua did in fact cling to God and worship him alone. Joshua obeyed even though he failed, even though he disobeyed whenever God said um, in, Joshua, in chapters four through six, we see Joshua disobey God, take AI without permission, and they failed. But still, by the end of the book, we see that Joshua's heart was pure and that this is what stuck through the generations of Israel. Because like David, Joshua's life cried out to Israel, we cannot find hope in ourselves. Worship God alone. Rejoice in him always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Death and loss will always point to the truth that all we really have is God. And so sitting with that reality, that what death and loss shows us is what we really have. How do we worship in the sting of death? How do we worship in the pain of loss? How do I worship when my fear, feel, failures and my sins are ever before me and my trouble surrounds me, the trouble that I, I got myself in? How do I worship? Well, I'll tell you that when Scripture says rejoice always, it's not saying ignore the difficult realities in your life. It's not saying ignore death and loss. Because grief is good and right. We should grieve. When there's loss, when there's death, we should grieve. But we don't worship Jesus because we should by saying, okay, well, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna give attention to what's sad. I'm just gonna worship. It's actually recognizing the loss in our lives and realizing through the end of it, Jesus is really all we have and Jesus is really all we need. It's only then that we're able to worship. And so how do we fix our attention and our affection on Jesus? How do we fix our attention and our affection, our worship on God. Uh, both the life of Joshua in the last two chapters of this book and the, book of the letter of the Philippians say the same thing. Not in these words, but they, they show us by their actions to practice gratitude. If we look at what Joshua has done the last two chapters of this book, you'll see it repeated. Look at what God has done for us. Cling to him. He's good. Obey him with your whole hearts. 
And then Philippians 4. We can turn back to Philippians 4. Remember the Spirit says in that first paragraph that we read, rejoice in all things. Rejoice. Don't be anxious. But in all things, give gratitude to God and have God's peace. And then in verse 8, the Spirit says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's almost sarcasm that Paul's bringing into this letter. If anything is excellent, like these, these are the Christians that are being killed for their faith in Jesus and they're not giving it up. They know what's excellent. And so he's using this upside down hyperbole to say, you know what's excellent, cling to it. Express your gratitude for it. Think about these things that are true. Think about what's honorable, whatever is just. Think about the pure in Christ. Think about his loveliness, how commendable his actions towards us are. Think about his excellence. Think about how worthy of our praise he is. You've seen me do this. You've watched me. You've learned from me. Do it yourselves and the peace of God will be with you. Remember that peace that surpasses all understanding? What is its role in our hearts? It rules them. I don't want to be ruled by my anxieties. I don't want to be ruled by my failures, my shame, and my guilt. I want to be ruled by the peace of Christ that leads me to worship. Practicing gratitude will train you. It will train your brain. It will train you to rejoice in all things. Gratitude is both a feeling and a skill. And we know this because science. There's actual, thank you, Chris, for laughing at that. There's actual neurological pathways in our brain that are reshaped and reformed when we practice gratitude. Now, I keep using the word practice on purpose because practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Practice takes time and energy and consistency. That means when you start practicing gratitude, you're not going to get from it what you want. Just like if I started playing piano, I wouldn't be able to play like Logan plays. It takes practice. And so we dedicate time and energy and devotion to practicing gratitude, to train our brains to find more things to be grateful for. You'll be amazed. Give it a week. There was this old practice um, in ancient Judaism where at their three points of prayer through the day, they were required to find 18 things to be grateful for. 18, three times. They had to be different. I don't know math. What is, what's 18 times three? A lot. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> 54. 
54 things every day that are different things that you can be grateful for. Once you train your brain for gratitude, you'll just find 54 things and you won't stop at 54. Practice gratitude because it's the fruit and the fertilizer of our worship. Death and loss reveal to us what is most meaningful in our lives. And for those of us who trust Jesus, it reveals to us that he's the only thing that is meaningful, that is truly meaningful in our lives, the only thing that will make it through death. We'll still grieve. It's good and right to grieve. But in our grief, we will have reason to worship when God is the the only true and meaningful thing. And so this is why we take communion. This is why we um, take the bread and the wine. We have tables on the sides of the stage and one in the back. We take communion because we remember and we celebrate, we worship and find gratitude in the death of Jesus. It was this ultimate display of the love of God that we cannot be separated from. We find gratitude for his sacrifice. And by trusting him, we identify with his death. We, we do this practice weekly because we're identifying with his death and we're saying, Jesus, I'm grateful and I worship you for what you've done and I follow in your footsteps to put to death in me those things that my soul wants to cling to that's not you, that my soul wants to worship that's not you. We put those things to death. And so we confess and we receive the forgiveness that's already given to us in Christ when we take communion. And this is why um, in the letter to the Corinthians, scripture actually tells us that if uh, there are any unbelievers among us that they shouldn't take communion because if they take communion, they're lying. Because when we take communion, we're worshiping and we're also identifying with a death that we trust in. And if an unbeliever takes communion with us, they're saying that they're worshiping and identifying with a death that they do not trust in. And so we encourage our non-Christian friends to refrain for that purpose. But as you sit, as you take this time during communion, would you reflect on what is most meaningful to you? What is that thing that you naturally worship? What is that thing that you preach the good news of to others that you daydream about, that if you lost it, you would surely die? And I implore you that if you do not trust in Jesus, he's the only thing worthy because he's the only thing that will make it through death with you. And if you make that choice today, join us. Join us in worship. Join us in communion. And let us know so we can celebrate with you. Holy Father, we are unworthy to receive your son, but because of your son, you have made us worthy. And so we worship you this morning because of your goodness, because of the purity of your love that came down from heaven to bring good news of freedom that death could not 
be the end of us, but that death would reveal to us your son. And so, Father, we seek your forgiveness and we ask that you would lead us into your truth and you would lead our hearts to worship. Would you train our minds and our hearts and our bodies to find gratitude in all things? Not just in spite of our circumstances, but even because of our circumstances. God, we love you and we thank you for your son Jesus, that it's through him we can worship you this morning. Amen.